Hey everyone, it's JM here at Disciple Dojo, and this video is going to be the second session from the Gordon Chapel Revival Week of Services, where I went down and taught a big picture overview of the Bible. In this second session, we zoomed in on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, why it's important, and how to understand it, because it's the confusing part of the Bible, for sure. So I wanted to give the people there, and you viewers watching this, a big picture look at the Old Testament. I hope you enjoy it. Again, the sound quality is not studio quality. It was recorded live, so take that into account, especially you audiophiles out there. So I have the really hard job because I have to keep you awake after eating all of that food. I didn't wear my eating pants either, so I'm a little, <sighs> got to suck it in. We talked about the Bible being like a treasure and how like the earth, the surface of the earth, right? Everything you need to live on the surface of the earth. Everything's on the surface, right? You got animals to uh, get milk from and to hunt and to live off of. You've got trees to build your houses and, you know, you can sow your crops and feel. We don't need to go digging in the earth, but companies we saw last night, like diamond companies or oil companies or whatever, they dig deep. They spend billions of dollars. Why? Because the deeper you dig, you find treasure. Well, it's the same principle with studying the Bible. The more we dig into scripture, this is where we find treasure. And a lot of times what we do barely qualifies as scratching the surface. So for tonight, building on what we did, what we looked at last night, we talked about the edges, right? Putting the puzzle together. The Bible seems like a big jigsaw puzzle. It's confusing. We just don't know what to do. So what do we do? We pick out memory verses or favorite books that we read and don't really read the other books. And instead of doing that, I mean, that's fine. It's not like that's wrong, but that's not digging for treasure. And that's not really as transformative as God wants scripture to be. But instead, when we see the biblical story as a whole, then what we find out not only is who is this God that we serve and what is this world that we find ourselves in and how did it go wrong and why did it go wrong and what's God doing to make it right. But we then find out what we are supposed to be doing as part of that story, because this is the thing we're in this story. We are in this story. We're specifically right there in act four. That's where we live. And so we are part of the story. If I were to ask you, tell me the story of the Wizard of Oz. Just tell me the story. Most of you in here could probably tell me the general story of the Wizard of Oz. You may not remember every scene. You may not know every uh, thing that happened. But you could tell the general story about what? A girl named Dorothy and her little dog. Toto. Everybody loves Toto. And they get taken up in a tornado and then she finds herself in this weird new wild country called Oz. And she has to go to see the wizard so that she can get home. And then at the end, she may or may not have dreamed it all. We don't know, but they kind of leave it up in the air. But the point is, that's a story that all of you if you've seen the movie or you've grown up with that story, you can all pretty much tell the story. Same thing if I were to ask, what's the story of Huckleberry Finn? 
You know, if you read Huckleberry Finn in, in elementary school or middle school or high school or later in life, you could probably say, well, it's about this boy named Huckleberry Finn and his friend and he and Jim, who's a runaway slave, and they get on a raft and they are trying to get Jim to freedom. And that's the story of Huckleberry Finn. And they have adventures along the way. So we have these stories that we all know. And we have different stories that we know. I couldn't tell you what happens on a soap opera. But my granny, when she was still with us, could tell you everything that happened on days of our lives or as the world turns or guiding light, you know your stories. Yeah. And, and guys, you know, whatever you're into, we all have our, some men, you know, they can tell you all about the story of Braveheart or Gladiator or 300 or whatever. So we are captured by stories. We are enraptured by stories. Our lives are changed by stories. If I were to ask you, what's the story of the Old Testament? Very, very few people could share the story of the Old Testament the way that they could share the story of the Wizard of Oz or of Gladiator or of any soap opera. Because we're not taught it as a story. We're taught it as these little individual stories that are only loosely related Right? We're taught Abraham something about offering his son on the altar, or Noah, he built an ark for some reason. God was mad, and uh, you know, and then there's David, and he, he killed a giant, but then he also killed a man uh, and slept with his wife, so he's kind of a mixed bag. And then there's Solomon, who was going to cut a baby in half. Don't know why. Uh, so, so we have these, it's like this, the, the, our, our minds are filled with these little stories. But the question is, what do those little stories have to do with the story, the big story? And the way that Jesus and every little boy and girl growing up in Israel at the time of Jesus learned who they were and who God was and what God wanted was through their story. That's what Israel did. Israel told their story to their children and their children's children and their children's children. That's, they did not teach them sermons or lists of rules at first. Now, those things may come later, but from the earliest days, they taught their children, this is who we are. We were slaves in the land of Egypt. And the God of our ancestor, Abraham, brought us out of slavery into this land. And, da, 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 and, and they would unfold the story. And so to a large degree, we lost that in our culture, in, in the Christian culture, in church culture. We've lost the understanding of scripture as a story. But we saw last night, it's all interrelated. Scripture is all tied together. So if we know the story from the Old Testament then we see the New Testament in new eyes. The example I use when I teach on this, I teach at a, an organization called Samaritan's Purse as part of a partnership with the seminary that uh, I graduated from. And we, we teach their field workers all over the world. So sometimes I have to teach in two weeks, I have to do a course. And I may have students in there from Liberia, Iraq, Pakistan, France, Canada, I mean, all over the world and right here in the States. And so I had to try to find a metaphor or an analogy that makes sense globally. And what I realized was everyone everywhere in the world, if there's one thing that they are at least familiar with, it's soccer. 
we not so much, you know, we're, this is the heart of Georgia dogs country, but soccer is the sport that unites the rest of the world. So I could tell village pastors from India when I'm teaching there, I could say, how many of you have seen a World Cup game? And village pastors, they may not have one TV in the entire village. All of them will raise their hand. They've at least seen a World Cup game because it's so important to them. And so the analogy that I shared with them, I said, okay, imagine this. Imagine watching the championship of the world, like the final World Cup game, whatever it is. For us, if I were in the, here in the South, I'd say the SEC championship or the Super Bowl or something that really matters. But for the rest of the world, I'll say World Cup. So I say, imagine watching that game on a little black and white TV. Now, I grew up with a little black and white TV. I had rabbit ear antennas and you had to turn the knob and you had to pull it out to turn it on. It would go when you pull the knob out and then do the antennas. And if you stood there and touched it, it'd get better reception. So that's what I grew up in and grew up with. And I remember watching Super Bowl games on a little TV like that. So what I say is imagine watching the most important sporting event of your life, whatever it is. And if you're not into sports, pretend you are for the sake of the analogy. And you watch it on a little black and white TV. You know the score, you see who wins, you see the famous plays, the big moments. Okay, now imagine watching that exact same event, World Cup Championship or Super Bowl 25 or whatever big event, but going into a Best Buy and looking at it on a 100-inch plasma screen TV, the most HD, 4K, I don't even know all the letters and numbers that they have now, but those, you know what I'm talking about, those incredible TVs. Same game, same outcome, but it is almost a completely different experience. Because on that HD TV, what can you see? You can see the players' sweat dripping down their face. You can see the blades of grass on the field. If the player steps on the line, the little black poof thing pops up, you know, when they're playing on AstroTurf, and you can see exactly where their foot lands and, and if the ref got the right call. You can see so much more. But does the game change? No. Same outcome, same score, but it's a whole different experience. That is what reading the New Testament is like when you know the Old Testament. When you know the Old Testament, you see the New Testament in HD. You were reading the New Testament and, and you're reading it on the little black and white TV. But when you know the story of Israel, when you know the major themes in the history of the people of God, then you open that New Testament up and you start seeing things everywhere that you never noticed before. Because the writers of the New Testament presupposed that you knew the Old Testament story. Why? Because they were all first century Jewish followers of the Jewish Messiah of Israel. They didn't have a New Testament. This is a quote by Christopher Wright. He's my favorite living biblical scholar. There's two people I think you should read every single thing they've ever written that you can get your hands on. The first is C.S. Lewis, and the second is Christopher Wright. And he says this quote in his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. He goes on about why he likes teaching the Old Testament so much. And he says, in short, the deeper you go into understanding the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. After all, Jesus never actually read the New Testament. You think about that for a minute. 
Jesus never read the book of Ephesians. Jesus never did a Bible study on Philippians. Jesus never said, let's read the gospel of John. No. Why? Because he was living it. He was, he was the one doing the thing that the people later wrote down about. So for Jesus, when he spoke about scripture, when he opened their eyes to the scriptures, as he does in the book of Acts, he's not teaching them the New Testament. He's teaching them Exodus, Isaiah, the Psalms, Zechariah. He's leading them through. Why? Because those were their scriptures. How many of you could sing along with the song tonight? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Most, a lot of us in here knew that song by heart. Probably sung it a hundred times, maybe more in our lives. Well, that's what the Psalms were for Israel. They sang the Psalms as their worship songs. So when Jesus is on the cross and he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people who don't really know their Bible were like, oh, wait, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Why? Because he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And Eli sounds like the Hebrew word for Elijah, Eliyahu. And they just misheard. And they thought he was mumbling and delirious thinking Elijah is going to come rescue me. But one of the people, if you read the gospels, goes and takes the sponge and dips it in the, and offers it to him. Why? Because that person knew their Bible. They knew that Jesus wasn't saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as just a normal statement? He was basically crying out Psalm 22. He was crying out the name of the psalm. And they knew that in that psalm, it was about the Davidic king who was in exile, should be the rightful king, but who is being tormented and chased by would-be kings and persecuted and is crying out as if he is being torn apart by wild animals and feels like his hands and his feet have been pierced. And he cries out, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth because he's out in the desert. He's thirsty. That one person knew that reference that Jesus was making. And what did he do? He went and got something to quench his thirst. It's a, it's a very, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense when we first read, gloss right over it. But if you know the Old Testament, then you're like, that guy got it. Or at least he knows what Jesus is thinking when he's hanging there on the cross. And then you go back and you reread the Psalm and you're like, wow, wow. Imagine instead of David saying this about his earthly struggle, Jesus is saying this about his cosmic struggle and using those words to describe it. Then you start to understand, oh, that's what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms give us words to pray when we don't have any words to pray. What do we do when we don't have words to pray? What do we do? We say, um, uh, um, or we do the Christian version, the sanctified version. Father God, Lord, Father, I just, Lord, I just, Father, I want to thank you, Father Jesus, Lord. For Right? We just repeat different names for God or say the word just because we're like, I don't know the words. I want to pray. I want to pour my heart, but I don't have the words for it. Well, the Psalms are those words. And so for Israel, when they didn't have words to cry out to God, they would go back to the Psalms and they would pray the Psalms. That was their vocabulary for how to speak to God. So as we're reading the Old Testament, that's what we're doing. We are getting into, like Christopher Wright says, we're getting into the mind of Christ, the heart of Jesus, the thing that, that, that drove him, that animated him.
There's a weird thing that Christians, some Christians do. I say some Christians, not all, but some Christians, a weird thing they do. They try to pit Jesus against the Old Testament. You know, it goes back to Martin Luther's time and, and a few before then, but, but they try to say, well, the Old Testament was, oh God, I'm grumpy and angry and mad. And then Jesus comes along and he's happy and he's lovely and everything's wonderful. And it's like, that's not at all what's going on in Scripture. God in the Old Testament is not grumpy and angry any more than he is in the New Testament when his people rebel against him. And he's just as loving in the Old Testament to his people as he is in the New Testament to his people. They're just different sections of the Bible, and most people don't read the Old Testament. If they do, they read it just to get through it. Why? So I can check off my, I read the Bible in a year list. Hey, guess what? Here's, here's, let me just share you a secret. You don't get any credit in heaven for reading the Bible in a year. You don't get one inch closer to glory because you read the Bible in a year. Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's bad. I'm not telling you not to read the Bible. But reading it in a year does nothing for your sanctification or even for your edification. Reading it to understand it, hey, it may take you 10 years. It may take you 20 years. Maybe you're a speed reader. You can get through it in six months. That doesn't matter. It's are you absorbing it? Really making the people in the back work. You guys are on it. So this is the example I'm going to use while he's getting the mic. Have you ever seen one of those hot dog eating contests? Have you ever seen on ESPN the guys just stuffing their face with hot dogs and a cup of water to dip it in and they're just, you know? Are they getting a nutritious meal? No, they're just cramming food down their face, right? Well, reading the Bible just to get through it, thank you, sir. Reading the Bible just to get through it is like that. You're just cramming Bible verses into your head. Now, that may give you some tiny bit of sustenance, maybe. But sitting down to a nice meal, like we just did right down the street, is going to be so much more fulfilling. And so when we're reading scripture, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to savor it. We want to be able to take it in to digest it, not just cram it in. So we're going to go through, I'm going to give you the story of Israel in, in just a short amount of time. Now, this is a hard, this is a because the Bible makes up 77% of the, the Old Testament makes up 77% of the Bible. So we, we got to go through 77% of the Bible in like a few minutes, but I think we're going to do it. And if nothing else, you're going to get those edge pieces understanding. And if somebody asks you, what's the story of the Bible? What's the story of the Old Testament? At least you will be able to tell them the overall story. And hopefully see where you fit in. So here's the story. The Bible begins Genesis 1 through 11. And if you have your Bible, you can kind of flip along as we go if you want to or not. If you want to take notes or something, uh, some people find that helpful. Genesis 1 through 11 is the beginning of the Bible. It's the preface. It's the introduction. It's the scene that happens before the title screen appears in the movie. You know some movies... They call it a cold open. It'll just start with a scene and you're boom, you're right there in the middle of something. And then a bunch of stuff will happen and then the title will come up. And then after that, the movie starts. Well, Genesis 1 through 11 is that. It is giving us, okay, here's, here's, here's what you need to know 
Israel. The Bible, the Old Testament was written to Israel. Here's what you need to know about who God is, how the world got into the state that it's in, and what God's going to do about it. And that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is giving us. You see God creating, God blessing creation, God giving a mandate to humanity, us, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, subdue it, to, to, to manage it, steward. That's what God's doing in this opening section. But then you see the entry of rebellion, sin, death in Genesis 3. This figure, the serpent, enters into the scene. And so you have God, and he created the nations. And then all of a sudden, there's this gulf between God and, and all the peoples because of sin, rebellion, and death. And this is all unfolding in Genesis 1 through 11. There's that sin leads to idolatry and wickedness and separation. So those opening chapters of Genesis, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, yeah, to nine. They tell all about the downward spiral of humanity and all the nations spreading out and, and how people become idol factories. I go to India most years, not every year, especially not with COVID. And India is a Hindu nation. And Hinduism has 330 million gods. 330 million gods throughout the land of India. I mean, you can literally walk by a newspaper stand and there's a little temple. Some of them are no bigger than this. And inside that little temple, there would be a little idol. And people who wanted to get that God's favor would bring little gifts and place it there. Or they go to big lavish temples and they bring gifts there. Why? To get the God's favors. Why? Because they know that this world is messed up and it's hard and things, they need something to give them uh, uh, security and, and, and blessing. And they want their crops to grow and they want their children to live and thrive and they want their job to be secure and they want their family to not starve to death. And so they, they, they reach out to these gods of their creation. And humans everywhere have done that, all over the world. And, and Genesis is telling us, yeah, that's nothing new. That goes all the way back to the beginning. That's what we do. We make things to worship instead of worshiping the one who made us. So this pattern continues. And finally, it gets so bad that God says, hey, if I let this keep going, this whole thing is going to be destroyed. So I'm going to wipe the slate clean, start over, and we're going to have Adam 2.0. His name's going to be Noah. We're going to get this whole project back on track through him. And God does that. But after Noah, after all the people are gone, sin is still in the world. And Noah's own children feel the effects of it. Noah feels the effects of it. And, and it continues. And it culminates in the very next section with the, the people trying to storm the heavens by building their own Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel was a way just to get the favor of the gods. And so they... Do that. They're, they're still trying to create their own identity and their own religious faith. So they do that. Then after all of that, that's a lot. That's like a year's worth of sermons uh, that we just did in a few minutes. But after all of that, then we come to Genesis 12. And at Genesis 12, we meet a guy and his name is Abram. 
And Genesis 12 is where the, the title screen of the Bible would appear. If you want to know the story of the Old Testament, it begins in Genesis 12. Because God calls this guy Abram, and he says, I'm going to do something very specific through you. If you go where I'm telling you, then I'm going to do some things. And what he says, we don't have time to go into it, but he gives these promises that he's going to do. He says, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. Bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. He gives him all these promises, and it ends with the final promise. So that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Through you, Abram, rich, old man with no children. His family line ends with him. He's well up there. He's older than almost anybody in this room, I would guarantee. Well, maybe not guarantee. I don't know. But I don't want to be rude. So I don't know. You're all like 25 in my eyes. And he says, hey, your offspring, your family is going to be how I bring the nations back to me. This is God's plan. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is God's big idea of the Bible. Everything else in the Bible that comes after Genesis 12 is the fulfilling or the unfolding of what God tells Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Everything else. And so it continues to unfold. Abram, he has, uh, God makes this promise to him in chapters 12, and then he reaffirms it in 16 and 17. And then Abraham has two sons, and God says, it's going to be through the younger one that I'm going to carry on this promise. The older one's fine. I've got him. I'm going to take care of him. Ish Ishmael's cool. He's going to do his thing. And yes, he's part of your people, but, but Isaac's the one who this promise is going to carry on through. And then Isaac has two sons as well. And God does the same thing. Only this time they're twins, but he says, still, the older one's not who it's going to go through. It's going to go through the younger one. Why? Because I'm a God who likes to take people by surprise. I'm a God who likes to do things that people don't expect. All the nations have their ways of what they think the God should be like, and I do my best to turn those on their head as often as I can. And that's the God of Israel. But his plan, so Jacob ends up becoming who God is going to carry on this plan through, and Jacob ends up having 12 children, or 12 sons and a daughter. And those 12 sons become the heads of what becomes the tribes of Israel. And this is all of the book of Genesis. So by the end of the book of Genesis, Israel is a person. Jacob got his name changed to Israel. And it, by the way, Israel is a fun name. It just means wrestles with God or struggles with God. And he got it because he literally wrestled with God. And God changed his name and said, yeah, you, you've, you've struggled with me and you've come out changed. And and this is who your identity is going to be. There's, oh, we could do a whole cool session on that encounter, the all-night jiu-jitsu match between God and Jacob, but, but we don't have time. Uh, but anyway, so Israel, this is how Genesis ends. Israel is a people. They've gone from a person to a people, when there's about 70 or 72 of them, and they're down in Egypt. And God had made this promise, through your offspring, in this land, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But then Genesis ends with their offspring in another land, and they've saved some people. You know, Joseph saves the area with the famine, and he does some stuff that, you know, is kind of fulfills the promise, but doesn't completely fulfill this promise. And then Exodus begins. And you turn the page between Genesis and Exodus, and 400 years pass. 
Think about that. 400 years, turn the page, 400 years. That's longer than America's been a country. Everything that's ever happened in the history of this nation could have happened in the span of time between Exodus, Genesis and Exodus. Just perspective is helpful sometimes in that regard. When we think God's not answering our prayers quick enough, those are some things that I like to keep in mind. You know, Abraham heard from God. You're going to, all this stuff's going to happen. Genesis 12, one through three. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. Da, da, da. 12 years pass. He didn't even have a child yet. 12 years. Think about that. Remember, when we start to get impatient, God's timetable is frequently bigger. But this is what he's doing. So eventually, Israel, in, in they, when we turn the page in Exodus, not only is 40 years past, but now they're slaves. And they're slaves in a genocidal regime in a foreign land. They are seen as bad hombres who have come across the border and are stealing the jobs and all that kind of... I mean, all the language that people in our day and age apply to others, foreigners, that's what they were applying to Israel at the time. And the king, the pharaoh at the time said, well, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do some population control. And so he comes up with this horrible plan that's, that's genocide. It's ethnic cleansing. And God says, no, I, this is now is the time I'm going to bring my people out of slavery and I'm going to bring them to myself and I'm going to prepare them so that then I can send them into the land and they will be the light that draws all the nations back to me. And I'm going to do it by making a covenant with them. I'm going to make a covenant. What's a covenant? That's a church word. What does it mean? What's a covenant? Well, there's one covenant that most of you in here know about very firsthand familiar with. I am not, as you can see, that I have no ring on this finger, but a lot of you do. And that means that you have entered into a covenant. It's called marriage. A covenant is a binding agreement that's legally binding, that's socially witnessed and binding in the community, and that's spiritually binding. That's why you get married in a church with witnesses. So it's legal, it's spiritual, and it's a community thing. Well, God does that with Israel. He enters into a covenant with Israel. He literally marries Israel. He talks about it in the prophets. Why does Hosea use the image of marriage all throughout his book to describe God's broken relationship with Israel? Because they are like an adulterous wife. God married them and they cheated on it. The prophets, all the prophets basically repeat the same message. That's what Israel does. They, they enter into a covenant. God marries them. They repeatedly cheat on him. They cheat on him on the honeymoon night. In the book of Exodus, God's given them the covenant. They have just said, I do. And then God, Moses goes up the mountain to receive the rest of the covenant. Golden calf. Right there. They, they don't even wait for the ink to dry before they're already cheating on God, breaking the covenant. And they do this time and time again. And But God says, this is this, you keeping this covenant is going to be how you are my people, I am your God, and all the nations of the earth are going to see this relationship have, and they're going to be drawn to know me. That's the plan. And Israel, time and time again, sabotages the plan. Over and over, they do it right when God gives them the plan. So God gives a, a cosmic mulligan. He says, all right. Moses falls on his face and says, please don't wipe them out. God says, okay, I'll give you one do-over. And so they, what do they do? They immediately break the covenant again. God wipes out that whole generation by letting them die in the wilderness. And their children are the ones who are going to receive the benefits of the covenant and enter into the promised land. 
As soon as the children get in the land, one generation, they've already forgotten God. What does he do? He sends them the prophets. Prophet after prophet after prophet. So all those books in the Old Testament with funny names. Malachi, Nahum, Obadiah. Those are the prophets. And God's sending them to Israel. And their main message is turn back to this covenant. Keep the, the we made the bargain. We made the contract. We signed our name on it. Keep the rules. Not so you can earn God's favor, but because God rescued you. He brought you, he saved you. The language that we use in Christian circles of getting saved. I mean, it was the Methodist church, but we still, we're kind of like our Baptist friends. We talk about getting saved, right? We still believe it. Well, that language comes from the Old Testament. God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. So it was literal in the Old Testament. We use it as a spiritual term. God rescues, he saves us from Satan and from sin. But it originally was the language of Israel. Because that's the paradigm. That's what God's wanting to do. So he brings Israel out. He, he marries them. He, he enters into this. He, he says, if you just keep the terms of this covenant, you will be the blessed nation of all nations. People will stream to you. You descendants of a nobody in the middle of a nowhere will be the greatest nation on the earth. And the people over and over again go, nah. We'd rather worship the local gods. They're more fun. You know, we can do fun things at these pagan services that we don't do when we go to the tabernacle and make our sacrifices. And so we, we want to worship the gods of the people around us. And time and time again, God says, turn back, turn back, turn back, because the end is destruction. And they don't believe him. And so what ultimately happens is they get... Finally, it reaches a point of no return. And Andy said that you've been teaching through Ezekiel, or he's been teaching through Ezekiel lately. And, and that's what Ezekiel is in the middle of this situation, where God has basically said, okay, here's your warning, Israel. And he sends Babylon in to, to put them in place and takes away the best and the brightest, the leaders and, and the community shapers, and then cart them off in chains back to Babylon and tells Israel, behave. That was your warning. And so Ezekiel is one of those priests that got taken away. So Ezekiel's over here in Babylon. All right, this is Babylon. Okay, this is Jerusalem. This is going to be important in a minute. Okay, Jerusalem, Babylon. Ezekiel is over here in Babylon. He was a priest supposed to be serving at the temple in Jerusalem, taken into captivity. Well, all the time he's hearing from God in Babylon and all the people around him who have been brought over, they keep hearing, hey, God's going to take us back because our God's the real God and we have the temple and we're God's people. We're the chosen nation. So God's going to take us back and rescue us and da, da, da. And God tells Ezekiel time and time again, no, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, the rest of those people in Jerusalem, they're on their way here soon. They're going to be destroyed because they're not turning back either. So that's what Ezekiel is having to do ministry-wise. Well, in the meantime, an older, uh, a slightly older prophet of Ezekiel, a guy named Jeremiah, is over here in Israel, and he's telling Israel, hey, see what they've already done? They're going to do that even greater, and God's not going to rescue us. Why? Because we have broken the covenant. We are done. 
And guess what? That's not a popular message. He does not win most patriotic Israelite of the year award. He gets thrown in the bottom of a cistern. He gets put in prison. He gets persecuted all for telling the God's people, you're not acting like God's people. You're acting like pagans and you're about to be treated like the rest of the world when this bigger nation comes in and takes us out of here. So you've got God's prophets in two different locations telling his people and they don't listen. So you think it's over. This whole project that began with Abraham should be over, right? It should be done. And then God gives this message to Ezekiel. He tells him this promise all during the bad news. He said, that's the bad news. But the good news is after this is over, I'm going to do something. And this is what he says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you back into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you. Methodists love that verse because it's like sprinkling. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Look at this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I will do for you what you have not been able to do for yourself because your heart was hardened through sin and rebellion. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. And I'm going to take your rebellious spirit. I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. I'm going to regenerate you from the inside out. This is the message that Ezekiel gets. The same time, Jeremiah over here gets a similar message. God says, look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, a covenant they broke, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. I will forgive their sin, I forgive their wrongdoing, and never again remember their sin. This is what Jeremiah is told. Now, this is before the judgment's going to happen. God's giving a glimpse. There's judgment Sin has consequences. We can't just sin on and on and, oh, God forgives, God forgives. No, sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences are Babylon comes in and destroys you. And sometimes those consequences are your marriage falls apart. But there's still consequences of sin. So sin has consequences. But those consequences don't have to be the final word. Because there is always, when God's judgment falls, it is, it is like a test of the person's heart. Will we respond to God's judgment with anger or with self-justification like Saul did? Or will we turn to God in repentance like a broken child with a humble heart, not even try to justify ourselves before God and just confess and repent like David did? 
That's the choice. That's the, the parable Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the sinner who are both there pleading. Well, the Pharisee saying, well, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other people. And I, you know, I do all this and I tithe and I give. And I'm not like this awful tax collector. And then the tax collector over there just can't even look up to heaven, just beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, hey, guess which one walked home justified that day with God? Hint, it wasn't the Pharisee. That, that humbling contrition of the heart that is what leads to this covenant relationship. So here's what's happening. God says, listen, Israel, you were supposed to be a light to the nations, but you, you, it's like you cut the lifeline. You sabotage the vehicle. The thing that was supposed to be the means by which the world would come to know me and you and we would be in relationship and things would be put back on track after going so wrong. You blew it. But guess what? I am bigger than even your sin. I'm bigger even than your rebellion. And I've got a way to do it and to do it in a different way. Same purpose, but it's going to look very different. And it's not going to be about you being my people by living according to these things written on stone tablets. It's going to be about you being my people with my spirit in you and my law written on your hearts, the new covenant. And, and the thing about the new covenant that's so cool is the new covenant is an Old Testament thing. The new covenant was already talked about in the Old Testament. The new covenant was talked about. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses also talked about it all the way back in Deuteronomy. Looking forward into the future, seeing the people's disobedience and telling them even on the other side of disobedience, there's restoration. This is the story of the Old Testament. So Israel, this is how the Old Testament basically ends. Israel comes back into the land. The people do after 70 years and the whole Daniel stuff happens and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And then people like Ezra and Nehemiah come back and Israel starts to slowly rebuild. But it's not this glorious earth-changing event that the prophets had talked about. And so there's still a longing for this to happen where God puts his spirit in his people, where he convicts them and, and removes their heart of stone and gives them heart of flesh and, and, get, and changes them from the inside out. The pouring out of the spirit, all of the stuff that the prophets look forward to, they don't happen in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament ends with Israel back in the land, slowly rebuilding, getting back on track to worshiping God, but still waiting for this event and how it's going to happen. And the last thing that's very important about this whole story is that when the prophets were saying, God's going to make a new covenant with Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and I'm going to restore, the prophets also in numerous places told Israel, when this happens, Gentiles are going to be included. It's going to involve, it's, it's not, it's going to be a covenant with Israel, but not limited to Israel. And we get hints and we get glimpses and we don't even have time to go into all of the passages where this is promised, but you can look at Isaiah 19 for an example, where even the hated Egyptian and the hated Assyrians are promised they will be brought into the kingdom of God. And we will end, I will end with this passage from Isaiah. 
because Isaiah has this message and speaks this message the clearest. At the end of the book of Isaiah, we meet this figure, and he's called the servant of the Lord. And sometimes the servant, when you read the passages, it kind of sounds like he's calling Israel the servant, like Israel, the people, are the servant of the Lord. Okay. But then sometimes the servant is talked about as one who's going to rescue Israel. So the servant has this weird identity. The servant, this Isaiah servant is in one sense Israel, but in another sense, he's the one who's going to rescue Israel. And it's never resolved in the Old Testament. It's a mystery that's left hanging. But this is what it says, Isaiah 42. We read about the servant. God says, this is 42 one, I don't have a slide for this. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his law... Not in the Torah of the Old Covenant, but in his law, the servant, the islands, and that means like the farthest nations, will put their hope. And then God goes on to say, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. He's talking to the servant. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And there's other servant songs as well. Where I mean, these are famous Old Testament passages, but they talk about the servant doing the same thing. And, and in chapter 49, in the second of these servant songs, we read this. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? So God's talking to the servant in this vision of Isaiah, and God's telling the servant, hey, yeah, you're going to bring back Israel, you're going to bring back Jacob, but I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So I'm going to keep this plan, but it's going to involve the nations coming to know me, not just the tribes of Israel. And it's going to happen through the work of this servant figure who's also going to be an heir in the line of David, a king over Israel. I mean, all these things are thrown around the Old Testament. But this is the main story. God is going to reach the nations through his covenant people being filled with his spirit. That's the story of the Old Testament. And it started with Abraham, it went off the rails, it went off the rails again, it went off the rails again, it kept going off the rails, and so God says, I'm going to make new rails. I'm going to make this happen, and it's going to be in a new way. So this is the Old Testament story. Everything you read in the Old Testament fits into this story somehow. And this is where we find ourselves. Tomorrow night, we're going to take a new look at the New Testament we're going to look at the Old Testament with this, the New Testament with this story in mind, and we're going to start to see how God accomplishes this according to the New Testament. But the reason that I love teaching the Old Testament, one, it's because it's, it's three quarters of the Bible. And so if God's given us this massive library of treasure, then it doesn't make sense to only dig in the final 23% of it. 
Like we should be digging in all of it. The other reason I like the Old Testament is because this is the story that gives the shape to how we can then understand Jesus. So that when we come to the New Testament, we see where do we fit into this? Well, the New Testament's going to tell us where we fit in. It's going to talk about Gentiles are now brought into Israel in the biblical sense. And so this is then our story as well. So what does God want you to do? Let's say you can't come tomorrow night or the night after and you leave tonight. What does God want you to do here in Madison County? Here in Madison County. I, I drove through a couple of counties on my way here. What does he want you to do? He wants you to do this. He wants you to be filled with his spirit. Be in a relationship with him that comes from repentance of your sin. Letting him renew, take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, fill you with his spirit so that you can then be in relationship with God in this new covenant. And through you doing that, the nations are going to be drawn to God. The nations are going to be pointed to God. You are going to be, as the New Testament says, the aroma of Christ. Just by being in relationship with God and having a transformed heart and a new spirit, and a new hunger that people notice, people will notice. And they'll want to know. They may not ever ask you. You may not ever know who you reach, but people will know. I have a t-shirt I wear when I teach sometimes on my web, on YouTube channel, and it just says, smell me. Right across the front of it, in big letters, smell me. And then in tiny letters, it says 2 Corinthians and the verse about the aroma of Christ. But you get weird looks when you wear a t-shirt like that in public. But then I tell people ask, and I say, well, this verse that says that if, if we're following Jesus, we should be the aroma of Christ. We should smell like Jesus. So how do I smell? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a way of being kept in check. But, but that's what's happening. Let me tell you, you're giving off some kind of odor. No matter what deodorant you wear, what perfume you spray on, what fabric softener you use, you smell like something. The question is, do you smell like Jesus? Or do you smell like all the other gods of this world? All the other things that people pine after. Old Testament. It was Jesus' Bible. It was the Bible of the early church. It's very big. It spans a thousand years. The New Testament only spans maybe 50 years. The Old Testament spans a thousand years. There's a lot in it. But ultimately, the message of it is very simple. God wants to reach the nations through his covenant people. And when his covenant people rebel, what's he going to do? And that's how the Old Testament ends with them waiting for God to finish what he's promised to do. So that's all for tonight. I hope you come back tomorrow. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at the New Testament. I will tell a little bit about the, the ministry that I run um, to refugee, immigrant, and lower income kids in Charlotte. Charlotte's a hub city where a lot of international people end up getting settled through the program, the government programs. And so we do an outreach to that community. Um, I'll talk a little bit about, about that more tomorrow because tonight was a lot. But hey, 77% of the Bible, right? Like we covered 77%. That's pretty good for one revival service. So um, I hope your brains are full. Uh, I know my belly's full. Hopefully yours are too. Andy, would you, so let's have some great music to end tonight. Thank you.